Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Borderlines, a Canadian immigration law podcast. I'm Stephen Murens. This episode is going to be different from other Borderlines podcast episodes that I have previously recorded and that you may be used to on this podcast. Usually, Diano Kanachoff and I sit down, sit down being in quotes because we record via Zoom, with one to two other individuals to discuss different issues pertaining to Canadian immigration law or other areas of the law in general. Today, though, I am going to record a historical deep dive about a piece of legislation, a Canadian Order in Council from 1911. I am a huge fan of long-form history podcasts that go in-depth on a topic. The podcasts that I especially like include and I'm going to plug a few of them here, although these are big podcasts that need no plugging, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, possibly the godfather of history podcasts, and I especially encourage listeners who are interested in history to check out his series Wrath of the Khans, which is around 13 to 15 hours on the history of the Mongols, or Ghosts of the Ostfront, which was around the same length and about the Soviet and Nazi War, the Eastern Front, as it's sometimes called, in World War II. I also like Daryl Cooper's Martyr Maid. He did around 30 hours on the history of Israel between around 1880 to 1948. Paul Cooper's Fall of Civilizations, which each episode is around four hours of the rise and fall of a different civilization. And Mike Duncan's Revolutions, which went really in-depth, like, 15 to 20 hours on each of the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the Russian Revolution. Uh, all of these and many others are just different long-form history podcasts that I'm very into. And for a while, I've wanted to take a crack at recording a long-form history podcast myself. Depending on how this goes, I may do more, although probably never more than one per year, given other commitments that I have. So here we go. The 1911 Order in Council. First, what is an Order in Council? 
An order in council is a legal instrument made by Canada's government pursuant to a legislative authority. In other words, usually a piece of legislation will state in it that the government can make orders in council pursuant to that bill. They are made on the recommendation of a responsible cabinet minister, and they take legal effect when the Governor-General of Canada signs them. Orders in Council can address a variety of matters. During the COVID-19 pandemic, for example, most of the travel restrictions that Canada introduced, including quarantine requirements, denying entry to people who are not vaccinated, restricting non-essential travel, and so on, were all done through Orders in Council. The benefit of an Order in Council, compared to, say, a statute, is that it is not necessary for Parliament to debate each individual order in Council. A bill or a statute in Parliament would need to be introduced in Canada's House of Commons, typically, go through committee for possible amendments, pass in the House of Commons, go through the Senate, possibly go back and forth if the Senate wants to make changes to the bill that the House of Commons passed, and then it would have to go to the general or the governor general for signing. Orders in council skip this lengthy procedural process and enable the government to respond promptly to situations when the government deems it necessary. The trade-off between an order in council and a statute is that there is less legislative oversight, but you get speed. Now, as I have mentioned a few times, the order in council that I want to discuss today is from 1911. First, I want to add some disclaimers. This order in council was a Canadian order in council which tried to ban black migration to Canada. In order to discuss the history of this order in council, it is necessary to discuss the circumstances leading to it and some of the hysteria at the time around black migration to Canada. This podcast, accordingly, will contain descriptions and statements that people, newspapers, businesses, government officials, etc. made at the time, which are quite offensive. Also, some of these statements at the time contain the N-word, both the one ending in E-R as well as the one ending in E-G-R-O. Indeed, the order in council itself contains the N-word ending in E-G-R-O. I will not in this podcast be saying either of these N-words, but will be referencing where it appears to remain historically accurate. I do have to admit that I had mixed feelings on this, and it seems weird, or almost inaccurate, or even almost, you know, ironically whitewashing, of the historical record to not say these words when reading historical quotes or passages. It's also not clear to me that the N-word ending in E-G-R-O is offensive, or at least as universally offensive, as the other N-word. I originally recorded this episode keeping the word ending in E-G-R-O, After recording, I sent the episode to a few people asking for their feedback, as this was my first historical deep dive, and I was feeling a bit uneasy about having recorded a podcast with the word. The feedback that I got was mostly positive. One university professor, though, called me and said that they liked the podcast episode a lot, 
They even were considering adding it as recommended material to their syllabus. But then they asked, and I'm paraphrasing, do you really want what is another or what is a really interesting presentation to possibly be overshadowed by a debate over the use of this word? And they even said to put my statement to you, Stephen, differently. Do you want the talk about this episode to be about the historical content and how interesting it was or to prompt a debate about the word and possibly even upset some listeners? And I certainly don't want this episode to become a debate over the word. And I also don't want people to not listen uh, because they would be offended or to have their experience hurt over what in the context and the grand scheme of discussing the history of this order in council is almost a secondary issue. So I re-recorded the podcast removing the word ending in EGRO and replaced it with the word black. And in order to maintain historical accuracy, I will reference and be clear when I do this. So now the actual order in council. Order in council 1911-1324 is short. It reads, quote, For a period of one year, from and after the date hereof, the landing in Canada shall be, and the same is prohibited, of any immigrants belonging to the black race, which race is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada, end quote. And as I mentioned, the actual word in the order in council is not black, but rather the N-word ending in E-G-R-O. I'll read the order again, quote, For a period of one year, from and after the date hereof, the landing in Canada shall be, and the same is prohibited, of any immigrants belonging to the black race, which race is deemed unsuitable to the climate and requirements of Canada. End quote. Now, there are a few reasons why I find this order in council to be very interesting. I am not particularly shocked or surprised that Canada enacted racist immigration legislation at around the turn of the 20th century. I mean, I'm not shocked at all. Like, this was the end of the 1800s, the turn of the 20th century. During the 1800s, right up until the end of the Second World War, really, Canada implemented numerous explicitly racist immigration policies. Two examples include the Chinese Head Tax and the Chinese Exclusion Act. This year, 2023, is actually the 100-year anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act. The Chinese Head Tax and the Chinese Exclusion Acts pretty much did exactly what their names sound like. The Chinese Head Tax was a tax or a levy on Chinese people who traveled to Canada, and then the Canadian government not being satisfied with that tax, enacted the Chinese Exclusion Act, which would exclude or ban Chinese people from immigrating to Canada, which came in in 1923 and would actually last until the end of World War II. As well, prior to World War II, Canada would deny prospective Jewish refugees the chance to avoid certain peril in Germany, including, probably most notably, those on board the MS St. Louis, a boat filled with Jews which had been denied entry to Cuba and which was returning to Europe. Several decades prior, in 1914, another boat, the Comagata Maru, which was a ship full of Sikh migrants, 
would be denied the ability to disembark because of the race of their passengers. Most of their travels would have to return to India after white people rioted on the shores of Vancouver. During the 1920s, Canada signed what was called the Gentleman's Agreement with Japan to restrict Japanese immigration. And of course, outside of the immigration sphere, this was also the period when mortality rates at residential schools were at their highest, according to the Truth and Reconciliation Report. Suffice to say, there was a lot going on, and it was not a pretty period in a lot of respects for Canadian history. Now, I was familiar with all of this history, and so the racist content of Order and Council 1911-1324 did not particularly surprise me. However, when I first read Order and Council 1911-1324, which, as an aside, was, and occasionally still is, posted on social media as an example of historic racism in Canada, you know, every once in a while I'll see someone tweet about how, while the United States had slavery... Canada had Order and Council 1911-1324. It definitely isn't the best comparison, and it's a bit odd, as I'll get into in this podcast episode, that Order and Council 1911 is held up as this example of the racism towards black people at the turn of the 20th century, when there are many examples that I think more better demonstrate the racism that Canada formally exhibited towards black people back then. In Ontario, for example, starting around 1850, schools could be segregated if there were enough black students in a district to warrant a separate school. In fact, the last segregated school would not close until the 1960s in Ontario. The same was true in Nova Scotia, which had a larger black population percentage at the time. In many neighborhoods, properties contained restrictive covenants that prohibited black people from owning or renting property. And I think many still do, but are just largely ignored. And you sometimes hear about different local governments across Canada considering revisiting all these restrictive covenants. And then, of course, many laws indirectly caused, or at least contributed to, social and economic inequalities for black Canadians informal hiring bans and things like that. But I do think that Ordering Council 1911-1324 is a bit, you know, it's a good symbolic piece of legislation for the discrimination and racist treatment that black people receive because it's a short bill that so clearly states that its goal is to ban black people from Canada for one year. It's a bill that neatly fits into a tweet or an Instagram image which is how most things, you know, modern social media, how things are uh, conveyed these days. The Ordering Council also just seems odd, which is why I was initially interested in it. What was going on in 1911 that the government of Canada decided that it had to ban black people from entering the country? Why did they not do the ban at the end of the 1800s? Why not 1912? I know it may seem silly, but these are the types of questions that when I see a piece of legislation like this, I wonder, okay, it's like the who, what, where, when, how, why. Why did this legislation get passed when it did? And if the Canadian government felt this strongly about the need to ban black migration, why did it decide to only ban black immigration for one year? Now, I told someone that I was going to ask that question, and they said that asking it makes me seem like a racist. So just to be clear, in case it isn't obvious, by asking the question of why black people were only banned from Canada for one year, 
or why the law was drafted to only ban black people from Canada for one year. I'm not saying that black people should be permanently banned. What I am is curious why, if the government of Canada felt this strongly about the need to ban black people from entering the country, why only do it for one year? Why not make it permanent? By the time the order in council was drafted, the Chinese head tax, for example, had been in place for over 15 years. And it was basically indefinite. So why, in this case, was the ban only going to be one year? Then there is the purported rationale for the order in council. The strange part about black people being deemed unsuited to the climate of Canada. By climate, did the Canadian government mean the cold? Did the Canadian government really believe that black people were not suited to cold weather? And if so, how could the Canadian government believe this, considering that black people lived in Canada already? especially in Ontario and Nova Scotia, where they were forced to attend separate schools. Like, there were already laws in place that recognized the presence of black people in Canada. So it seems weird and almost hard to believe that the Canadian government would think that black people were unsuited to the cold. So if the politicians in the government didn't believe this about black people, which I have to assume that they did not, then did they believe that the public would believe it? Was this something that white people really thought at the turn of the 20th century? That black people are unsuited to the cold? Or did the drafters know that this was just a bunch of BS to justify racism, and everyone who read the law knew that it was to BS to justify racism, and just a, a weird justification to ban black people from moving to Canada because of some sort of moral panic? And finally, and this is something that a lot of people tweeting the Order in Council seem to miss or not know, Order in Council 1911-1324, the law to ban black people from moving to Canada for one year, was proclaimed, it was written, but it was never brought into force. So why would the Canadian government go through all the trouble of drafting and enacting this Order in Council with its weird rationale and time limit only to never follow through with it. So I started to research, and in this podcast episode, I am presenting the story of Order in Council 1911-1324, the Order in Council to ban black people from entering Canada for one year because of the cold. In order to set the stage for what led to the imposition of Order in Council 1911-1324, it is first necessary to provide an overview of the overall context of immigration to Western Canada at the time. Canada became a country in 1867, when the British North America Act, now generally known as Canada's Constitution Act, united Ontario, Quebec, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia into the Dominion of Canada a federal state within the British Empire. At this time, neither Alberta nor Saskatchewan were provinces. Rather, they were part of a vast territory called Rupert's Land, which was controlled by the Hudson's Bay Company, that same company that still exists today. The name Rupert's Land comes from the territory's first governor, King Charles, not the current one, but King Charles' cousin, Prince Rupert. Its inhabitants were mainly indigenous and Métis. Métis is essentially 
mixed native and European uh, race. It was not until 1870 that Rupert's land was transferred to Canada, and even then it was part of the Northwest Territories. There was no Calgary yet, not even a fort. Edmonton did have a fort, but it had not yet been ceded the land um, from natives to the Dominion by treaty. Regina's first house would not be built for another 12 years, and the same is true for Saskatoon. British Columbia did exist, but it would not join Canada for another year in 1871. In other words, as far as white people or settler people, the people that mattered to the new Canadian government, the place between Canada and their soon-to-be province of British Columbia was essentially empty and needed to be filled. In 1872, Canada passed the Dominion's Land Act. This act aimed at promoting the settlement and the development of the Canadian West, now what we think of basically as Alberta and Saskatchewan. It divided up the land and allowed for it to be granted to individuals, religious groups, the Hudson's Bay Company, parks, railway construction, and also set aside land for First Nations reserves. The law laid the groundwork where settlers could apply for homesteads of up to 160 acres from land that was previously inhabited by Indigenous people. A homestead is essentially farmland or a ranch. In addition to paying a fee, homesteaders had to meet certain conditions to gain full ownership of the land, known as proving up their homestead. These conditions typically included cultivating a portion of the land, building a dwelling, and living on the homestead for a certain period, usually three years. If the homesteader met these conditions, then they could apply for a patent or title to the land, effectively owning it outright. It's, a, it's almost like a rent-to-own program, but for 160 acres of land. Almost 1.25 million homesteads were made available for prospective immigrants. In other words, Western Canada was divided into 1.25 million parcels of land, homesteads, with the goal of filling it. Now, the creation of these homesteads obviously could not have happened, as I have alluded to, without the dispossession of these lands from the Indigenous people who previously lived there. That displacement is beyond the scope of what I am talking today, but I would be remiss not to mention it and acknowledge that it happened. In 1873, Canada created the Department of the Interior. Its purpose was to help attract economic immigrants to Canada. Nowadays, people wanting to immigrate to Canada must enter a point system or a lottery in order to have the opportunity to immigrate and buy or rent a house in one of the world's most expensive housing markets. Foreigners now are actually banned from buying houses in Canada, although there are several exceptions to this. Back then, Canada had to advertise to basically give land away. Canada lured immigrants by advertising primarily in Europe and the United States. The efforts were successful, and the population of Western Canada shot up. The way this mass immigration was achieved was through advertising and also lowering the price of land. In 1896, Canada amended the Dominion Lands Act. Would-be settlers from Europe or the United States would continue to get 160 acres of farmland in exchange for a nominal fee of $10. And I ran that through an inflation calculator, 
and in today's dollars it would be around four to five hundred dollars which again that's four to five hundred dollars for a hundred and sixty acres of land the burden of clearing and cultivating a significant portion of the land was eased and the government also introduced a preemption right allowing homesteaders to claim an additional adjacent quarter section of land once they fulfilled their initial requirements. Canadian migrant officials were stationed throughout Europe and the United States to entice immigrants under this program. Clifford Sifton, then the immigration minister, described to Canada's House of Commons the policy of immigration at the time as being this, quote, It has not for many years been the policy to make any attempts to induce mechanics or wage earners to Canada, the test we have tried to apply is this. Does the person intending to come to Canada intend to be an agriculturalist? If he does, we encourage him to come and give every assistance. End quote. Clifford Sifton described his ideal immigrant as being as follows. Quote, when I speak of quality, I have in mind something that is quite different from what is in the mind of the average writer or speaker upon the question of immigration. I think that a stalwart peasant in a sheepskin coat, born to the soil, whose forefathers have been farmers for ten generations, with a stout wife and half a dozen children, is good quality. Quote. Let's flash forward to today. In 2018, Canada closed its self-employed class permanent resident program to farmers and has not replaced it. This was a niche program that allowed people to immigrate to Canada if they had previous self-employment in farming and intended on becoming farmers in Canada. It was a very niche program and certainly not Canada's main immigration program. However, at the turn of the 20th century, this would have been Canada's main immigration program. And this program came not just with a permanent resident visa, but with 160 acres of land. By 1902, 15 agents and 236 sub-agents traveled throughout the United States trying to find farmers who were willing to relocate to Canada. Now, why Americans? Historian Sarah Jane Matthew of the University of Minnesota, in her book North of the Color Line, says that Canada's preference for American immigrants was in part due to Americans being from the same continent, in part due to Americans having the same language, at least in English Canada, and in part because Americans were comparatively wealthy there than Europeans. She wrote, quote, According to the official estimate, Canada-bound Americans migrated with an average of $1,000. In contrast, European migrants arrived with average capital ranging from $41.51, that's $41.51, for Scots, to $7.96 for Lithuanians. Now, why did Americans want to come to Canada? The main reason appears to be that land was cheaper in Canada than in the United States. In the Dakotas, which the United States government was also trying to settle, land cost $50 an acre in 1900, while comparable land across the border in Saskatchewan was selling for as low as $2 an acre by people who had originally had homesteads and were now selling their land. Another reason that Canada advertised for immigrants in Europe in the United States compared to, say, I don't know, India or China, 
was that the Canadian government at the time hoped to attract white immigrants. As I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, Canada at the turn of the 20th century had overtly racist immigration policies, or at least some, including, perhaps most notably at the time, the Chinese head tax, which was imposed in 1885. Not only did Chinese people have to pay a head tax, but there was also a limit on how many Chinese were allowed into Canada by boat. Now, you might be asking whether the Chinese could have done an end round around these restrictions on boat limitations by going to the United States and traveling north. And the short answer is no. The United States actually had stricter restrictions on Chinese at the time, so it wasn't possible for Chinese nationals who were willing to pay that head tax to simply get around the peoples on ship limit by going to the United States and then traveling north. Back to Canada trying to entice Americans to move here. By putting immigration agents in European countries and in the United States and running advertisements in those same places, the Canadian government probably assumed that the response to those advertisements would be from Europeans or people of European ancestry, you know, white people. However, of course, the United States did not only have white people living in it. America also had a considerable black population that was highly discriminated against. I mean, this is only around 50 years prior that the black people in the United States had been slaves, at least in the South. For the purpose of our discussion about Order and Council 1911-1324, we must shift our focus from Canada to Oklahoma, a state in the American South. For this is where the black migrants who arrived from Western or arrived to Western Canada prior to the introduction of the order would primarily arrive from. In fact, most historical sources that I read, which discuss Order and Council 1911-1324, often discuss with a often start with a discussion of the situation for black people in Oklahoma. And this is often the case I find when reviewing different pieces of Canadian immigration history, a person will often discussing the topic will first talk about the push factors causing someone or a group to leave their home country, and then they'll discuss the laws in Canada at the time, and that order is exactly what I am going to do here. In his 1983 paper for the University of Nebraska Press titled Diplomatic Racism, Canadian and Black Migration from Oklahoma 1905 to 1912, which is available for free online, Bruce Shepard, then an administrative analyst for the government of Saskatchewan, says that one black migrant to Canada stated the following about the plight of black people in Oklahoma. Quote, The people of Oklahoma treat us like dogs. We are not allowed to vote, and we are not admitted to any of the theaters or public places. They won't even let us ride in the streetcars in some of the towns. When asked why they chose Canada, he answered, We heard about the free lands here and also that everyone had the right to vote and was a free man. End quote. Oklahoma became a state on November 16, 1907, the 46th state to join the United States of America. This is just under four years prior to the imposition of Order and Council 1911-1324. When Oklahoma became a state, it had a somewhat sizable black population. 
many of whom had actually themselves migrated to escape racism from the United States. The first black people to arrive in what is now Oklahoma arrived in what was then called Indian Territory. These black people were the slaves of Native American tribes that had previously been located in the deep south of the United States, specifically the Cree, Chautauqua, Cherokee, Chickasa, and Seminole tribes. They had migrated to Indian Territory during the Trail of Tears, which was a forced relocation from 1838 to 1839 of these native groups that I just listed from the southeastern United States into what is now geographic. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. ...a part of Oklahoma, or at least a large part of Oklahoma... And during the Trail of Tears, these tribes brought their black slaves as hunters, nurses, cooks, and whatever else the black slaves were doing for their native owners. Now, on the Trail of Tears, these Indians literally had to march from, depending on their tribe, Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, North Carolina, and Florida into the Indian county of Oklahoma, Indian country, sorry, of Oklahoma. And the origin of the term Trail of Tears apparently comes from the Cherokee people. Over 4,000 out of 15,000 Cherokee would die during the forced relocation from their traditional lands into Indian territory. They would die from exposure to the elements, disease, and starvation. And that's just the Cherokee. The total amount, though, who died of the 60 to 70,000 people who had to march during the Trail of Tears is unknown. Although the Cherokee, from what I understand, percentage-wise, uh, suffered the most in terms of death. During the American Civil War, from 1861 to 1865, most of the tribes in Indian Territory sided with the Confederacy. The reasons for this included that many owned slaves and wanted to keep them. The tribes had grievances with United States government policy like that Trail of Tears that I just talked about, in which the natives or the tribes hadn't quite forgotten, proximity and that the Confederate states were closer, and because the Confederacy promised the natives greater autonomy than the North was promising. After the Civil War, when the Confederacy lost, the American government rescinded most treaties that it had with Native American tribes that had sided with the Confederacy and entered into new ones. These tribes followed the Emancipation Proclamations, and the tribes were all required to free their black slaves. Once the slaves were freed, former black slaves became, or were referred to, as black tribal members. They established themselves amongst their respective native tribes. The extent of the assimilation between former slave and their former Indian master 
I'm just going to use the term Indian since that's the term most history books seem to use, varied according to the tribe. It seems like relations between Indian and black were at least good enough that black people from other parts of the southern United States started relocating to Indian country. Black residents of Indian territory were soon joined by black Americans fleeing the racial oppression of Jim Crow in the South, and this would continue with several all-black towns being formed in the Indian Territory. Jim Crow were the laws in the southern United States that institutionalized racial segregation and discrimination. Jim Crow laws maintained separate but supposedly equal, at least that was the theory, schools, public places, public transportation, and even water fountains. Compare this with Indian Territory where it was common for white and black children to attend the same schools as late as 1900. Black people could vote and hold public office in both tribal governments and also the general Oklahoma Territory. In some cities, including Tulsa, black residents owned businesses. This all changed when Oklahoma became a state. On November 16, 1907, President Theodore Roosevelt signed a proclamation which turned Indian Territory and Oklahoma Territory into the combined 46th state of Oklahoma. Oklahoma's constitution would enshrine the segregation of schools. The very first law passed in Oklahoma's House of Representatives segregated train cars. Next, the state introduced a grandfather clause for voting. This grandfather clause instituted a literacy test on any person whose ancestors had not been allowed to vote before 1886. This, of course, would necessarily include all descendants of slaves. I'm trying to think of what a Canadian equivalent would such a law would be. And the only one that I could think of would be if Canada today passed a law stating that any descendant of a person who attended a residential school had to pass a test before they could vote. It's crazy, and like it, it just seems crazy to even think about. Now, that being said, before we in Vancouver at least get too smug, British Columbia's legislative history was actually not that dissimilar to Oklahoma's in terms of how British Columbia treated the Chinese and the natives. And if I ever do a podcast and continue these history podcasts, I'll dive into that in more detail. Segregation would spread through all aspects of life in Oklahoma. In 1911, the same year that Canada would pass its order in council banning black immigration for a year, a black mother and son were arrested in Oklahoma for murdering a deputy sheriff. They were taken by a mob from the local jail, dragged to a railway bridge south of the town of Okama, and hanged. This lynching was not a unique event. Lynchings would actually peak between 1889 and 1899, with an average of nearly 190 reported lynchings per year. Now, given all of this, it is not surprising that some black people, many of whom had moved to Oklahoma themselves to be free of discrimination, or those whose parents had come to Oklahoma before it became a state to escape the racial oppression of the South and Jim Crow, began to consider leaving. As I had just noted, many of them had already moved once, so this would be somewhat of a slow, sad continuation of black people having to move around North America in search of better opportunities and to be free from discrimination. Some started moving to Canada. In her book, North of the Color Line, Professor Sarah Jane Matthews writes, quote, 
The Canadian West had all of the markings for 20th century prairie fever. Canada's plains seemed a logical choice given that the exodusters were seasoned prairie farmers capable of adapting northern agriculture. Railway lines out of St. Louis, Chicago, and Minneapolis gave would-be settlers easy access to Winnipeg and other Western Canadian destinations. If black Oklahomans were losing their land to white Democrats, Canada's homesteading program immediately remedied their displacement. Canadian whites, or Canadians were white, but thankfully were not Southerners. Finally, Canada's ethos as a promised land prior to the Civil War left an indelible mark on many African Americans who remembered the Dominion of Canada as a Canaan for political asylum seekers during the 1850s, end quote. The term exodusters that Professor uh, Sarah Jane Matthews uses refers to African Americans who migrated from states along the Mississippi River, mainly to Kansas, but also to Oklahoma. The exodus is a reference to the biblical story of the Jewish people leaving Egypt. And as far as I can tell in researching the term, it has nothing to do with dust. So the question then becomes, would Canada be that, to quote Sarah Matthews, promised land? When it comes to the history of black migration to Canada, most people are probably familiar with, or at least have heard of, the Underground Railroad. The Underground Railroad wasn't a train or a railway line, but rather a network of abolitionists in the United States who helped African Americans escape slavery in the South by escaping to the northern United States or Canada. Slavery had existed in a small form in Canada during the 1700s, but by 1800 had been more or less abolished because of court decisions, and then it was formally abolished when the British Empire made slavery illegal in 1834. As an aside, the reason why Nova Scotia had a relatively large black population compared to other provinces was because during the War of 1812 between Britain and the United States, that's the war that Canadians like to talk about because we burned the White House down, Britain would take any black Americans who essentially claimed refugee status with them, and they were resettled primarily in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. In 1850, the United States passed the Fugitive Slave Act, this empowered slave catchers to pursue fugitives into the northern United States, including in states where slavery was illegal. The result for slaves who had you know, fled their, uh, their owners in the south to the United States was that now that they could be apprehended in the northern United States, they fled to Canada. An estimated 30,000 to 40,000 former slaves from the United States would enter Canada through the Underground Railroad. How this network worked is quite fascinating. If I continue to do these types of history podcasts, I may do an episode on it later. By the turn of the 20th century, however, the Underground Railroad had started to reverse. It is estimated that in the 19th century, Canada's black population peaked somewhere between 1857 to 1863, when it was estimated to be around 20,000 to 60,000 people, or 0.7 to 2.3% of Canada's overall population. In 1870 to 1871, the combined census of Canada and British Columbia reported a population of 21,958 African Canadians, 
or 0.6% of the population. That would be after the American Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. By 1911, the number of black people living in Canada had dropped to 16,877 out of 7.2 million people, or 0.25%. So from around the 1850s, just before the American Civil War, to 1911, the black population of Canada is declining, both in absolute terms as well as relative terms. Different historic sources provide different theories, and often they'll say that, you know, there are many different theories for why Canada's black population decreased both in relative and absolute numbers. From what I can tell after reading numerous sources, the most popular theory appears to be that once the United States issued the Emancipation Proclamation and freed the slaves, many former fugitives and their descendants returned to their extended families back south. However, as I'll discuss in more detail later in this episode, some white Canadians posited or opined that black people returned to the United States from Canada because Canada was too cold for them. And this brings us to the turn of the 20th century and the era of mass migration to Canada under Clifford Sifton that I previously discussed. Clifford Sifton's boss was Prime Minister Wilfrid Laurier, a liberal. Wilfrid Laurier was elected Prime Minister of Canada in 1896, ending 22 years of Conservative rule. Wilfrid Laurier was Prime Minister from 1896 to 1911, 15 years and 86 days. This made him the fourth longest serving Prime Minister in Canada in total years, and the longest unbroken consecutive duration. For context, Justin Trudeau, Canada's current Prime Minister, has served just under nine consecutive years. His father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, was number three for Prime Minister, length at 15 years and 164 days, although not all of that was in a row. To match his father, Justin Trudeau would need to be Prime Minister until January 29, 2031, assuming it's consecutive. John A. Macdonald, Canada's first Prime Minister, was Canada's second longest serving Prime Minister at 18 years and 359 days. William Leon Mackenzie, Canada's longest serving Prime Minister, was Prime Minister for 21 years and 154 days. To match that, Justin Trudeau would need to be Prime Minister until April 7, 2037. It seems crazy to think of and almost impossible to imagine. But I guess we'll see. Back to Wilfrid Laurier. He has a f many notable accomplishments. Um, he was Canada's first French-speaking prime minister. And in terms of what he actually accomplished, I mean, I could, you know, do a whole podcast episode on it. But since this is an immigration history podcast on order and council, 1911-1324, I'll just list some of Wilfrid Laurier's other achievements he entered into negotiations with the United States about the precise border with Alaska. He entered into a reciprocity agreement with the United States, it's similar to a free trade agreement. Most of the historic sources next to immigration will actually seem to rank this as his most important accomplishment. He tried to bridge the divides between English and French Canada, although that's a never-ending process. He created the Royal Canadian Navy, 
Wilfrid Laurier authorized the construction of two more transcontinental railway lines. Probably pretty significantly, he added two provinces to the country, Saskatchewan and Alberta, and he brought a lot of people to them. These two provinces, as I previously mentioned, were carved out of the Northwest Territories and divided into homesteads. During Wilfrid Laurier's time as Prime Minister, almost two million migrants would immigrate to Canada, with 47% heading to Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, which immigration Clifford Sefton dubbed the last best West, as most of the United States had now been not filled, but most of their programs to encourage immigration were winding down, and so Canada was able to take advantage of this and again admit almost 2 million migrants, with 47% heading to Western Canada. Of these, about five to 6,000, or 0.25%, were black. These black migrants would settle in different homesteads that would eventually become towns. They weren't settling in large urban centers. Rather, they are going to homesteads in very remote areas. The largest was Amber Valley in Alberta, 160 kilometers north of Edmonton. It's about halfway between Edmonton and Fort McMurray. There were concerns about whether black people could survive the cold. These people settling 160 kilometers north of Edmonton would seem to prove that they could. Established in 1910, Amber Valley had the largest community of black people in Alberta, numbering several hundred until the 1930s. Like many other towns formed during this era, it is now considered to be a ghost town as people over the years moved to urban centers. Other towns founded or predominantly settled by black migrants in Alberta during this time include Junkins, which would become Wildwood, Keystone, which would become Breton, Campsey. Saskatchewan, they would found Eldon and Shiloh. These towns all still exist and have around 100 people each. I'm not sure if any of the original descendants remain, except for Shiloh, where according to a Global News article, the great-grandson of Julius Caesar Lane, one of the town's founders, is apparently leading restoration and heritage site-saving efforts. During this movement of black people, two organizations, the Loyal Legion Cooperative Educational System and the Alberta Colonization and Settlement Society, provided financing to black migrants for their journeys. According to Professor Sarah Jane Matthew in North of the Color Line, one Oklahoma paper said, quote, Indications are that there will be a general exodus, end quote. Bruce Shepard, in his paper, writes, quote, The black migrants learned about Canada by reading their local newspapers. Before World War I, the government of Canada advertised extensively in American newspapers, attempting to lure farmers to the Canadian plains. The Canadian government appears to have contracted through a press service and may not have checked the end products too closely in its haste to attract settlers. End quote. As historian Sarah Jane Matthews describes, quote, The arrival in Canada of one or two black people may have been a romantic curiosity for the country. A hundred, however, especially in the atmosphere of the early 20th century, was different. End quote. The backlash to black migration started almost immediately. In April 1908, the Ottawa Free Press announced that <coughs> seven 
black families from Oklahoma had purchased farms west of Edmonton. One month later, the Manitoba Free Press reported that 1,500, quote, colored people had come to Alberta during the past year and there promised to be big immigration in the future. The Edmonton chapter of the Independent Order Daughters of the Empire, a women's group dedicated to supporting patriotism towards the British Empire and essentially keeping Canada British, petitioned Canada's Minister of the Interior to stop permitting black migration to Western Canada. Business groups joined in. Edmonton's Board of Trade launched a petition campaign and passed a resolution to, quote, take such steps as will effectively prevent the advent of black people to Western Canada, and that such black people as are now on homestead lands in the country be segregated in a certain defined area or acres from which white people or white settlers would be removed, end quote. The petition letter also stated, quote, We therefore respectively urge that such steps immediately be taken by the government of Canada, as will prevent any further immigration of black people into Western Canada, end quote. Now, I should note that both the petition and the resolution use the N-word ending in E-G-R-O, not the term black. F.D. Fisher, the head of Edmonton's Board of Trade, is reported to have said that this stance that they were taking had nothing to do with racism, but simply was intended to avoid racism from becoming an issue. In other words, he said, and to be clear here, I'm putting words into his mouth, he didn't actually say this, but the concept is, made-up quote, I guess, it's not that I'm racist now, but if I had to interact with a black person, I could become one. So the best way for me to not become racist is for you to ensure that I ever have to meet a black person. And made up quote. And again, to be clear, he didn't actually say that. I'm just quasi-paraphrasing. Boards of trade across Western Canada joined Edmonton's Board of Trade in calling for an end to black immigration to the country. On April 3rd, 1911, William Toburn, Canada's Conservative Member of Parliament for Lanark North and Ontario, asked the Minister of the Interior whether the government was prepared to stop black migration and whether Canada should, quote, preserve for the sons of Canada the land that they proposed to give to, and the N-word. I'll reread that. Quote, preserve for the sons of Canada the land that they are proposing to give to, the N-word. And obviously, the Member of Parliament did not use the word N-word. The mayor of Verdun, Manitoba, told immigration officials that black migrants from the West Indies, in this case, were not wanted in his community as, quote, farmers' wives are afraid of them. Almost all of the sources discussing Order and Council 1911-1324 tell the story of Harry Sneed, an Oklahoma clergyman and mason, who in March 1911, again the same year that the order was implemented, led a group of black migrants bound for northern Alberta, Amber Valley to be exact, the town that I just described. Mr. Sneed arrived on seven specifically commissioned freight cars loaded with horses, mules, cattle, and farming equipment. By this time, word had spread to prospective settlers that Canada was not as welcoming as they had hoped. Aware of the harassment that he would likely face at the border, he arrived at the Canadian port of entry with doctors and lawyers. 
According to the Ottawa Free Press, his attorneys even summoned the United States Consul General stationed in Winnipeg at the time, Dr. John Jones, to ensure that Mr. Sneed and his group would receive fair treatment. There was even a reporter at the border who had been alerted that a spectacle may occur. At the border, Mr. Sneed is quoted as saying, quote, We come to this sunny Alberta not as peons, not as a subject race. We feel that our gentlemen and ladies are able to compete with the white ladies and gentlemen of this country. We cross the boundary not asking for anything but loyal citizenship, end quote. Now you can imagine the Canadian border officials must have been thrilled at this spectacle of this person arriving with seven specifically commissioned freight cars with doctors and lawyers in the United States Council. Yeah, and I'll get into a bit why Mr. Sneed anticipated trouble. In any event, he made it through, and he was one of the founders of Amber Valley. According to Professor Sarah Jane Matthew in North of the Color Line, it may actually have been this attitude of dignity that Mr. Sneed showed, the spirit that he, a black man, could compete with Canada's white men and ladies, that may have actually driven some of the antagonism and backlash in Canada. To quote Sarah Jane Matthews, quote, Destitute enslaved fugitives had stroked Canadian egos, but galvanized black migrants raised the alarm over the possibility of inheriting a case of black insurgents stirred up by visions of independence, democracy, entrepreneurial spirit, and populist ideology. Canadians cooked up a rationale for black exclusion that danced around white supremacist convictions of the day, pointing instead to nature as the root cause of their concern over African Americans. End quote. And another quote of hers, quote, Independently-minded black immigrants endangered Canada's social fabric, whereas compliant black men benefited a romanticized bygone old dominion. End quote. You still occasionally see a bit of this mindset, or at least suspect that you're seeing it, whereby the citizens of a country, and you can even say Canada, will encourage and want poor immigrants who will be grateful for the opportunity to live here, but not rich immigrants who view immigrating as the means to an end. This especially becomes the case when you hear grumbling in Vancouver say about immigrants leading and driving a housing crisis, with a focus in Vancouver generally on the wealthy migrants of Hong Kong compared to, say, refugees. That's a generalization, but that's the sentiment that you, you know, hear. It can be said that each rung of the social economic ladder is fine with immigration as long as it doesn't prospective or possibly lower their place on it. And Lord knows as soon as immigrants start trying to pull the local culture towards their customs or perspectives and not the other way around, someone will inevitably call for them to go back to where they came from, or if they're protesting, deport these people. And then social media will have a field day. Anyways, what was occurring at the border that made Mr. Sneed anticipate trouble? The United States Consul General, Dr. John Jones, that one who had met Mr. Sneed at the border to help him enter the country, would later determine that the Commissioner of Immigration for Western Canada had offered the medical inspector in Manitoba a fee for every potential black immigrant that he turned away. 
Now, to his credit, that doctor does not appear to have taken the money. However, according to several sources, other doctors did, with one book saying that the Canadian government rewarded meticulous medical examiners with a bonus of $5 for each black migrant rejected at the border. It's a clear case of Canada's medical inadmissibility laws being applied in a way where medical inadmissibility and specific medical conditions are not the main concern. One doctor named Maxwell Kaye, or Callis, the examiner at the port of entry in Emerson, Manitoba, reportedly earned $1,700 in 25 months. And apparently, as all of this hysteria is going on inside Canada, as boards of trade are calling for restrictions on migration, as the Canadian government itself is essentially bribing doctors to turn back black people for medical reasons from the border, the Canadian government also continues to run advertisements in black newspapers in Oklahoma. It's the classic case of the left hand not talking to the right hand, and more black people continue to try to move to Western Canada. It would be like if Canada's Immigration Department was trying to manage refugee intake and the Prime Minister posted on social media that Canada welcomes all refugees. Sorry, I, I couldn't resist making that joke. Anyway, Canada then has its To Kill a Mockingbird moment. In April 1911, a girl named Hazel Huff claimed that she was attacked in her house and drugged by a black intruder who stole things of hers, including a ring. News of the attack spread swiftly across Western Canada. A Calgary Herald editorial said, quote, The assault made by a colored man upon a little girl in Edmonton should open the eyes of the authorities in Ottawa as to what may be expected regularly if Canada is to open the door to all colored people of the Republic and not bar their way from open entry here, end quote. A Lethbridge newspaper warned that rural white women in Western Canada now lived in a state of fear of black people and urged the federal government to do something. The Edmonton Journal ran another article stating on another inc that another incident like this would, quote, push the rowdy element to the lynching point, end quote. And then what happens? There's an arrest of a black individual named J.E. Witsu. Hazel Huff, shortly after, admits that she had fabricated the attack because she had lost the ring and was scared. Eventually, it even comes out that Edmonton's chief of police had known that the attack was a hoax and apparently had sworn Hazel Huff to secrecy, hoping, supposedly, or apparently, that the case would cause the federal government to block, block black migration. Now, it is clear that none of these concerns, none of this hysteria, none of this fretting over crime, none of the pandemonium over black migration and the bribing of doctors to deny them entry had anything to do with their ability to assimilate to the cold. So where does this anti-black sentiment or racism come from? It is beyond the scope of this podcast to get into the origins of racism throughout human history obviously. I do want to briefly explore the dominant racial view that existed at the time in Europe and North America, at least amongst white people, which was called scientific racism. Scientific racism also played into the notion that black people were unsuited to Canada's climate, which is why I want to discuss it for a bit. 
In the book Racial Discrimination in Canada, The Black Experience, James Steve G. Walker writes about the merger of science and racism at the turn of the 20th century and previously, writing, quote, The scientific study of race in Europe and the United States in the second half of the 19th century gave widespread acceptance to the theory that physical and cultural variety derived from inherent genetic differences in humankind. European achievements in technology, education, standard of living, and individual liberty were contrasted with conditions in other continents. Furthermore, as European colonization of almost the entire globe proceeded, white people were increasingly assuming authority over populations with darker skins, an age that, as passionate in its quest for rational explanations and quantifiable evidence, quite regularly constructed the scientific method to explain the apparent differences in human characteristics. End quote. Now, what is so interesting about this, and what possibly distinguishes white racism or white supremacy from other forms of racism in which one individual might view someone of a different race inferior because of their skin color, is that white racism or white supremacy was then grounded in what was considered to be science, and now obviously known as pseudoscience. This can be contrasted with some belief that race was chosen by the gods, like in ancient Egypt or the Aztecs, or ethnocentrism in China during the 1800s and before, which saw the Han Chinese civilization as the most advanced and others as peripheral for largely cultural reasons, not so much racial, as far as I understand. Scientific racism really drove or dove into finding evidence for white supremacy. Back to James Walker's book, quote, For example, skulls and cranial capacity were measured in the belief that brain size determined intelligence. Since the skull of the Northern European was assumed to represent the highest intelligence, the shapes and sizes that were different must naturally be less intelligent. In this fashion, all physically identifiable human groups could be ranked downwards from Europeans, their place on the scale determined by their variance from the European ideal. Darwin's theory of evolution could then be applied to deduce the stage of evolution reached by each group. The conclusion was that human beings were categorized in races subject to the slow pace of evolution and therefore immutable in any lifetime. Membership in a race determined not only physical type, but also behavioral characteristics and tendencies. Science had proven that the hierarchical relationships produced by slavery and imperialism were natural and right." Trusting the pseudoscience may have explained systemic racism. It was also used to create the theory that black people are unsuited to the cold. The debate about black people in cold weather was also apparently one that had been underway for some time. According to Professor Christopher Willoughby in his paper, His Native Hot Country, Josh, Josiah Note, a prominent American physician and surgeon, who lived from 1804 to 1873, argued that each race was created for a specific medical climate. For whites, they could survive in the tropics and the tundra, 
but their lifespan would be significantly limited outside of a temperate climate. African Americans could only achieve optimum health in the tropics, according to this theory, but could survive in temperate zones. And there are many, many, many other doctors, physicians, scientists, philosophers at the time who shared similar opinions. And there were even theories that human beings aren't all one species, but rather that different races originated from multiple ancestral sources. This perspective was used to support ideas of inherent racial hierarchies and to justify racial segregation, colonialism, and slavery, as it suggested that different races were fundamentally different in intellect, morality, and culture, and adaptability to climate. The theory, as far as I understand, is a pseudo-deviant theory of evolution, where it's not so much that man evolved from monkey, but rather different men in different regions evolved from different monkeys, and therefore have different traits rather than a sort of common ancestor, I guess, and so we're all part of different species. Now these theories, or at least scientific racism in general, if not the idea that we all came from different species or that evolved from different sources, gained some traction in Canada. According to Professor Constant Blackhouse in Color Coded, A Legal History of Racism in Canada, 1900 to 1950, as early as 1864, quote, Physicians in Canada had been predicting that the harsh Canadian winter would be detrimental to the black population. And I just realized that I didn't say the name of the theory, which is polygenism, the idea that humans come from different species. Another possible rationale for the racism and this fear that white Canadians had is presented by historian Robin Wink in his book Blacks in Canada, A History. He notes that white riots against black people in Canada, separate schools, and the denial of work to black Canadians led to a general return to the United States after the Emancipation Proclamation. He wrote, quote, Relatively few left the Maritimes before the general great exodus from that region late in the century, but perhaps two-thirds of those in the Canadas, more recently arrived and often with family ties in their former homes, moved in reverse down the Underground Railroad. The Canadians generally referred to the new migration and such losses as a returning or going back to the South underscored the white assumption that blacks were unnatural to the northern landscape. End quote. Skipping ahead in his book, quote, Canadians accepted the usual turn-of-the-century smorgasbord of racial truths, half-truths, lies, and irrelevancies, and they selected their beliefs no less and no more intelligently than other northern peoples who did not have daily and intimate contact with substantial numbers of black men and women. On the whole, therefore, racial attitudes in Canada followed the continental norm above the Mason-Dixon line. End quote. The Mason-Dixon line is the sort of dividing line between the North and South in the United States. Finally, back to Mr. Wink, quote, to this conventional wisdoms, Canadians could add one doctrine of their own. Since black people could not stand a so-called climate, they should be barred for their own good, end quote. And again, Mr. Wink says that, you know, 
implies that that was a Canadian theory, but it actually was pr promoted by many American and European doctors as well, as I previously explained. So in reading multiple sources, well, so at the start of this podcast, I asked, where did the Canadian government's notion that black people were unsuited to the cold come from? And in reading multiple sources, some suggest that it, you know, seems to have stemmed as a way to explain the migration of black people back to the United States from Canada, deflecting blame from racism and to then justify a somewhat racist solution to it, if not a completely racist solution to it. Mr. Wink notes that there is some irony in this. Matthew A. Henson in 1909, a black person, Mr. Henson, co-discovered the North Pole. Mr. Wink notes that Henson had apparently hoped that his triumph would quiet contentions that black people were unsuited to the North. But, as Mr. Wink notes, if Canadians could ignore the presence of thousands of black people in Nova Scotia who had survived the cold, they could very well ignore Mr. Hansen's accomplishment as well. I'm not sure that this actually fully explains it, as the more one reads about the medical debates and scientific racism at the time, the more likely it does seem that there were many people who genuinely believed that black people were unsuited to the cold, and that even if they could survive, they wouldn't thrive. And the connection between scientific racism and black people being inferior, or at its extreme, even a different species to white people, also could contribute to the fear, rather than just being an excuse for the fear and not a result of it, if that makes sense. It's kind of a vicious circle. There are several examples of the media in Canada repeating the notion that black people were unsuited to the cold. The Times of London wrote, quote, One rarely meets a colored person in Canada, except on the dining and Pullman cars of the great through trains. The truth is that the severity of the Canadian climate either kills the black or drives him back to the south, end quote. And again, I switched words, replacing the N-word ending in E-G-R-O with black. Apparently, Canada's contention that the climate was unsuitable did generate some scorn, particularly in the American media, with a Chicago paper stating that this theory did not hold good of all the black people whose ancestors were brought to the United States 200 years ago or more. The paper said, quote, They are by this time pretty well acclimatized. In fact, they've become so thoroughly acclimated that when they go to tropical Africa, they suffer just as much as the white man does, end quote. In any event, with the public in Western Canada calling for restrictions, or at least a vocal number of them and prominent individuals in Western Canada calling for restrictions, the politicians and legislators responded. In 1906, Canada had introduced the Immigration Act 1906. This bill introduced several restrictions not previously found in Canadian immigration legislation. First, there was the introduction of medical inspections as a condition of entry. As I previously described, these medical inspections were used in a discriminatory fashion to prevent black people from entering the country, with the Canadian government, or at least its minister, immigration minister, even bribing doctors to ban and determine that black people were unsuited and hence inadmissible. Second, 
the law allowed the governor general and council to provide as a condition of entry that immigrants should possess a prescribed amount of money, the amount of which could vary according to the class and destination of the immigrant. Third, the law prohibited immigrants from landing, including, and these terms are from the short-form descriptors of the legislation, the insane, the epileptic, diseased persons, paupers, beggars, criminals, and prostitutes. The act also provided that the governor and council could, by proclamation or order, prohibit the landing in Canada of any specified class of immigrants. In 1908, the Continuous Journey Regulation was passed. It required that prospective immigrants to Canada travel by continuous journey from whichever country they were natives or citizens of directly to Canada. So, for example, if somebody wanted to try, in other words, if somebody wanted to travel to Canada, they had to take basically one boat from across the ocean to get here, which would really limit, of course, which places people would come from or could come from. If I ever do a podcast on the Kamigata Maru, I'll describe this legislation in more detail. I do want to note, though, that the continuous journey regulation was used to deny some black individuals entry to Canada who were not U.S. citizens, but were trying to travel to Canada from there. The website Pier 21 has on it the copy of a refusal letter from the Superintendent of Immigration in March 1911 to a British subject. It stated, and again I'm changing some of the language to say black, quote, I beg to acknowledge receipt of your letter on the 26th in reference to the admission to Canada of black people. The action of the department and the strict enforcement of the immigration regulations has been taken on account of it being the general opinion that colored people are not suited to the climate and other conditions here. As regards your own case, I must say that our regulations absolutely debar your entry. Immigrants are required to come from country of birth or citizenship by continuous journey on through tickets purchased in their own country. You being a citizen of British Guiana and not a citizen of the United States where you are now residing cannot be admitted. The fact that you are a British subject does not affect the matter in any way. End quote. So first it shows you know the continuous journey regulation was based on citizenship. I may not have fully accurately described it before. So a Chinese person, if they, again, could get to the United States, well, even just using this example of the person who's a Guianan citizen, but in the United States, the continuous journey would have to be from Guiana to Canada, not the United States from Canada. Now, would a British subject have been treated the same? I think not, although I do have no proof of that. Finally, in 1910, Canada replaced the 1906 Immigration Act with the Immigration Act of 1910. This act contains some explicitly race-based provisions. Section 37 of the act provided, quote, Regulations made by the governor and council under this act may provide as a condition to permission to land in Canada that immigrants and tourists shall possess in their own right money to a prescribed minimum amount, which amount may vary according to the race, occupation, or destination of such immigrant or tourist, end quote. And so for those who don't like legalese, what this regulation or law explicitly provided was that Canada could require that people who wanted to visit or immigrate have a certain amount of money 
and that the amount of money that someone had to have could vary according to their race, job, or destination. In other words, if someone wanted to come as a tourist, say, and they were white, they could be required to have $1, while if they were black, they could be required to have $4. Canada now has economic immigration programs, which some of which require that people have what's called a minimum necessary income, or a minimum necessary amount of savings, and it would be like if those requirements today, that minimum necessary income, could vary depending on one's race or job. Perhaps most relevant to the story of Order and Council 1911-1324 was Section 38D of the 1910 Immigration Act, which provided that, quote, the governor and council may, by proclamation, or whenever he deems it necessary or expedient, prohibit for a stated period or permanently the landing in Canada or the landing at any specified port of entry in Canada of immigrants belonging to any race deemed unsuitable to the climate or requirements of Canada or of immigrants of any specified class, occupation, or character, end quote. And you'll note that the language is similar between that section, Section 38D of the 1910 Immigration Act, and the Order and Council's wording. Given the timing of the introduction of the 1910 Immigration Act, compared to the Order and Council just one year later, it seems likely that this provision was introduced specifically to ban black people from Canada. I could be wrong about that, and I wasn't able to find any parliamentary debates where they discussed what the purpose of this provision would be, but the timing does seem suggestive. So if we start, step back a minute, what we have is legislation being introduced that will give someone or the government the ability to ban black people. And there are all sorts of different laws preceding this that the government has implemented, which is slowly taking us there. There's the introduction of neutral legislation, like med medical inadmissibility, that was just applied in a manner to target black people. Border points at Emerson, Manitoba, and Portal, Saskatchewan, by this point, were all being told to examine black people carefully. Frank Oliver, Canada's Minister of the Interior from 1905 to 1911, started inquiring as to which immigration or border officials had started admitting black immigrants. His office also started telegramming border posts to say that if they could discover any reason for deporting any black immigrants, that they should take action, and also suggested that city health officials be called if they suspected that any black migrants could not meet medical requirements. This is all the stuff of, you know, what goes on behind the scenes, it's those unofficial government policies or manuals or even phone calls that conspiracy theorists often wonder about and are sometimes right. But these informal policies weren't felt to be working well enough and certainly weren't perceived to be working by the government and by the different boards of trades and newspapers that were in hysteria about black migration. And so laws that I previously described were introduced to create other general inadmissibilities, like sufficient finances, in a manner in which the regulations or the law themselves could create different requirements for people of different races. 
And I guess, of course, having a financial requirement that could be applied differently to black people would not work that well if A, there were rich black people who wanted to immigrate, or B, there were organizations that were providing funding. And so in the 1910 Immigration Act, you see the creation of Section 38D, which explicitly just gave the ability of the government to ban people of certain races if they were felt unsuited to the climate of Canada. And given the pseudoscience scientific racism theories at the time, which explicitly provided that black people were best suited to tropical climates, it's clear, at least to me, what the purpose of this law was. In addition to passing laws, the Canadian government tried to stem the trickle, but possible tide, of black migration through messaging and informal means. At the end of the first decade of the 20th century, the Canadian government contacted an agent in Kansas City. They asked him to contact postmasters of the town who were receiving stamped-on inquiries for immigration to Canada and to learn if the person writing the letter of inquiry about Canadian immigration was black or white. The idea was that if the agent could find out which writers were black, that person could just not send the letters on. Application to immigrate or inquiry to immigrate lost in the mail so to speak. The Canadian government also sent an agent named C.W. Spears to the American South to try to dissuade black people from moving to Canada. Amongst other things, Mr. Spears would tell black people that, one, they would have trouble with the Canadian climate, and two, that there was emerging racism in Canada. It must have been somewhat awkward for Mr. Spears to have to go down to Canada and tell people essentially, hey, we're racist too but that appears to have been his mandate. Spears also met with Dr. S.S. Jones, president of the Oklahoma Conference of Black Baptists and the chief editor of the American newspaper Baptist Informer, who agreed with him that black people should not be leaving Oklahoma to move to Canada. Mr. Jones tried to dissuade black people from moving, leaving the state, both because of the racism and climate that they would experience up north but also because he believed that black people should stay in Oklahoma and fight for their right. It's a classic dilemma that almost always plays out in terms of mass migration or refugee resettlement. Do you stay and fight, or do you leave? Some sources claim that the Canadian government actually paid Reverend S.S. Jones a monthly salary of $50. I'm not sure if that's been confirmed or not, but there are some sources that state this. On May 4, 1911, the agent Spears sent letters to several other black pastors and stated, quote, Surely with a degree of confidence, they, black people, can let their buckets down and draw from their own resources in the midst of their own congenial surroundings. Why should your people be driven hither and thither through oppressive and despotic measures to climates and conditions wholly unsuitable? Why cannot they dwell in peace, enjoying their every privilege of full citizenship in the country and under conditions best suited to themselves? I feel assured that your advice to the colored people will not only benefit them, but reflect credit amongst yourselves. End quote. The Canadian government also hired Dr. G.W. Miller, an American black doctor, to tour black settlements in Western Canada and then go back to Oklahoma to try to dissuade black people from migrating. 
Mr. Meller went to black churches to speak. He would enter a town or a city, contact the black clergymen and anyone who he heard was interested in going to Canada and invited them to attend his talks. He would arrange to speak at a church or some gathering and have the speech reprinted in local black newspapers. In Diplomatic Racism, Bruce Shepard writes, quote, Miller was clearly the more effective agent because he was black and thus more readily accepted. And then further down, in addition, he had professional and medical qualifications and could therefore buttress the idea that blacks would be affected by Canada's climate, end quote. Professor Sarah Jane Matthews writes, quote, Dr. Miller's expose is on the, on the Canadian West's terrified southern audiences unfamiliar with northern climates. Miller claimed that during visits to Canada, he witnessed colored people frozen along the roadside, just like fence posts, and that they would remain in that position until the spring thaw, end quote. Miller would also describe the racist treatment that black migrants would experience at the border. Bruce Shepard in Diplomatic Racism writes, quote, The blacks' problems began at the international boundary. Government inspector would meet them, Miller said, and examine their luggage. Then the entire family would be subject to a thorough medical examination, where your wife and daughter are stripped of their clothes before your very eyes and examined by a board of men. What men of you would desire his family undressed and humiliated in such a matter, he asked. Their livestock was also examined, but since this commonly took thirty days, the extra expense was a real burden. And all of this took place, Miller said, even before they were allowed to enter the so-called promised land, end quote. According to Sarah Jane Matthews, quote, Against the backdrop of the endemic sexual exploitation of black women with black men often feeling powerless to stop it, this description of women and girls being publicly undressed by white men surely struck a raw nerve with Southern African Americans, end quote. Now, some of the sessions that Miller had would apparently include people with relatives in Canada, but he was able to argue them down when the relatives tried to argue that or suggest that he was exaggerating. Apparently, in some cities, Miller would find that other black settlers had already returned to the United States, and Oklahoma in particular, and were spreading their own horror stories about the Canadian winters and other stories of racism in Canada. There is some irony in this, that while Order and Council 1911-1324 incorrectly furthered the idea that black people are unsuited to the Canadian climate, and that it was somehow some sort of a benevolent uh, decree, that there were some black people in Oklahoma that were essentially saying the same thing as an argument for why they should not migrate north. Bruce Shepard writes, quote, In his last report, the Canadian boom is rapidly dying out as the unfavorable reports relative to Canada seem to have spread over the entire state. Everywhere I go, people say that they have heard of me and the unfavorable reports of Canada. Miller was absolutely correct, and for all intents and purposes, the black migration from Oklahoma to western Canada faded as 1911 progressed. Miller had done his work well." End quote. So as all of this informal stuff is going on, we come to Order in Council 1911-1324. On May 22, 1911, Bruce Walker, the Canadian Commissioner of Immigration in Winnipeg, 
informed the U.S. Consular General there that the Laurier government would be passing an order in council that would bar blacks from entering Canada. Relationships between the Laurier and Taft administration, Taft being the president in the United States at the time, were generally good as the two countries were concluding their reciprocity agreement to lower trade barriers. According to Sarah Jane Matthew, Bruce Walker wrote to Minister Frank Oliver and disclosed the details of his conversation with the U.S. Consul General there. The note said, quote, Dr. Jones informed me that in the most confidential manner that he had just returned from Washington, where he had an opportunity of discussing the matter with Mr. Secretary of State Philander Seed Knox. According to U.S. Consul General Jones, the Taft administration gave assurances that no one could very well blame the Canadian for not wanting African-American denizens, and that the United States authorities would not look upon the enactment of further restrictions as an unfriendly or discourteous act on the part of the Dominion government. End quote. Some sources, however, differ on the, the idea that the United States tacitly approved of Canada's decision to ban black people from entering the country, and suggest that part of the reason why the Order in Council was only for one year, and part of why it was never enacted on, was to avoid upsetting the United States. This is probably one of those things that we will never really know. Taft was President of the United States from 1909 to 1913. As far as I can tell in reading a few sources, Taft was a bit of a step back in terms of civil rights progress compared to his predecessor, Theodore Roosevelt. Mr. Roosevelt had apparently refused to replace black appointees that he had made to government when it offended white people, while Taft did replace black appointees. His administration would speak out against racial violence and lynchings, but he did not actively take steps to curb it. Although he was a Republican, and this was a, during the time when the Republicans were the party of Lincoln and viewed as the more civil rights party compared to the Southern Democrats, I didn't find anything which would suggest that Taft or the administration would be particularly hostile to the order in council, and I haven't found any historical sources which say why they did think or why there is speculation that the United States was upset, especially given this note that uh, was, alleged, was purportedly passed to Frank Oliver. The issue of black migration became a Canadian election issue in the 1911 election, although it was not the main issue. The reciprocity agreement between Canada and the United States was probably the biggest issue that divided the liberals, who supported it, from the conservatives, who did not. The conservatives portrayed the free trade agreement as a threat to national sovereignty. The liberals, on the other hand, promoted free trade. The Conservatives' protectionism. The Liberals stressed the importance of the relationship between Canada and the United States. The Conservatives, the relationship between Canada and Britain. Apparently during the election campaign, when Frank Oliver toured the West, he was met with, to quote Sarah Jane Matthew, angry white Westerners demanding resolutions on both free trade and black immigration although by no means was the trade issue and black immigration issue equally weighed. That being said, 
at least one conservative candidate said that they needed to prevent, quote, a yellow British Columbia and a black Alberta, end quote. Minister Oliver actually responded to that conservative MP by stating, quote, any person coming from another country into Canada and having the necessary qualifications is entitled to a homestead, and blacks get free homesteads the same as any other people, end quote. And again, he didn't say black. At the same time, though, Robert Borden, the leader of the Conservatives who would go on to win the 19 election, 1911 election, told the House of Commons that, quote, It would be very unfortunate if any impression got abroad that any person coming as an immigrant was to be excluded simply because of his color, end quote. And it's a bit, becomes a bit apparent that both sides are kind of speaking to both positions on this issue. Here are some other exchanges from that year in the House of Commons between Harry Gladstone, the Conservative member of South Essex, Mr. H.A. Clark, another MP from a neighboring riding, and Frank Oliver, the Liberal Immigration Minister. This is long, but I have reproduced it in show as it shows some of the actual Q&A in Parliament at the time. It also shows how, just like now, you can listen to what politicians are saying without having a clue what they are saying. And again, I'm replacing the N-word ending in G-R-O in these passages with the word black. Here we go. The question and answer in the House of Commons. Quote, Mr. A.H. Clark, South Essex. Conservative speaking. Speaker, I desire to call attention to a matter respecting another race of people. I mean the black. Representing a number of this race of people, who are honest, law-abiding, good citizens, I was very much surprised, in common with my colleagues, who represent the adjoining county of Kent, to find an article of the front page of this morning's edition of The Citizen, the leading, which was the leading conservative paper of the city of Ottawa, to the following effect. And the Member of Parliament then summarizes how immigration agents are trying to dissuade black people and black people are being turned away at ports of entry for medical reasons. And back to the speech. If it is correct that the officers of this government have taken the steps to prevent the entry into these country of these people on account of their color, then I think it will require a very great deal of explanation from the department to justify it. Colored people, in my experience, have been amongst the most loyal citizens of this country. They have been true to the British flag, and I think they are worthy to be reckoned amongst the people of Canada. Surely the large areas of this country are such that we have not the privilege of other places to refuse to take in this class of people on account of their color. Surely the large areas of this country are sufficient to entitle us to take our share of the classes who have not the fortunate been will find it a haven within our borders. Representing a large number of the colored people, I certainly protest against any rule which would exclude them on account of their color, and I think that before supplies are granted, it is only proper that a statement should be made by the government or by the Minister of the Interior with regard to this important matter, end quote. Supplies is just another word for money. So in other words, before they fund government, they want an explanation as to what is going on at the border. 
Minister Oliver responds, quote, I have noticed in the recently published paragraph of something of this nature of the one alluded to by my honorable friend from Essex. I have only to say that, insofar as the paragraph state or hint that the Dominion government has issued orders through its officials to prevent the entry of blacks into Canada, these paragraphs are absolutely and entirely incorrect. No such instructions have been issued. No such action is being taken. I would assume that the honorable gentleman being treated unjustly for illegitimate purposes. It may be, however, that they are being circulated on account of a misunderstanding or misapprehension of the policy of the department which I may be permitted to explain in a very few words. The immigration policy of Canada today is restricted, exclusive, and selective as compared with the former policy of indiscriminate immigration. We have exclusion officers stationed along the boundary between Canada and the United States and at our ocean ports, and under the laws and regulations authorized by them, the exclusion officers take measure to prevent the entry of all persons who may be considered undesirable under our law, without any distinction of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. I wish to have the matter thoroughly understood. In the administration of the exclusion provisions of the law, there is to taken into account the question of whether the proposed immigrant is ordinarily considered desirable or ordinarily considered undesirable. The, immigration is, who is, the immigrant who is considered desirable is the man ordinarily entitled to go on the land, and if he does not want to go on the land, the presumption towards him is not so favorable. There are many cases where the admission or exclusion of an immigrant depends on a strict or lax interpretation of the law, so that if the immigrant is of what we would call the desirable class, it may be that the restrictive desirable class, then they are administered laxly. And if he is of the presumably less desirable class, then they are administered more restrictively. Beyond that, there are no instructions to the immigration officers, but they are expected to act according to the instructions that they have. End quote. Now, if you thought that was confusing, so did another member of Parliament, Mr. Foster, who rose to say, quote, I know less now of the real circumstances of the case than I did before my anxious friend made his impassioned appeal before we voted any further supplies. I wonder if the honourable gentleman is thoroughly enlightened now after the minister's statement. For my part, I cannot tell for the life of me whether these coloured people are allowed or not. The only idea that I have from the statement of the minister is that he is above the law in that he winks at it if a man is going on a farm, but if he stares at it in a different way if the man is not going to go on the farm. If we have a law, and regulations framed under it, is the minister administrating the law and regulations, or is he not? And if he is, will these colored people be allowed to come in? End quote. And I skip through some back and forth, where they basically go back and forth on whether the minister is being clear. And the minister then replies, quote, I was trying to explain what the minister of public works said. These people will not be kept out because of their color and neither will be they be admitted because of their color if they are otherwise undesirable. 
end quote, to which people say, well, what makes them undesirable? And the minister replies, well, it is the conditions that are described in the law. So there are all sorts of questioning back and forth where the conservatives essentially try to pin down the liberals on what they are doing. And this sentiment that everyone is equal under, that the minister is making, that everyone is equal under the law and that discrimination is not occurring based on color, it's not clear, but instead whether they are desirable, it's not clear if he is gaslighting or exactly when he changes his mind to enact the order or at least to draft the order. In any event, we get to the order in council. On May 31, 1911, Frank Oliver, the minister who just said that Canada does not and has no plan to ban black people from Canada and to turn them away, and that there's no instructions to immigration agents to do so, sent a recommendation to the cabinet for an order in council barring blacks from entering Canada for a period of one year. The order in council was not passed immediately, and there were more debates on it. And the conservatives, it seems, were opposed. And during this election, notwithstanding some of the racial comments made, the conservatives were ultimately, arguably, the more pro-immigrant party, especially considering, you know, that the liberals had just introduced an order in council banning black migration for a year. Professor Sarah Jane Matthews summarizes and then tries to reconcile the situation as follows, quote, The Borden government introduced two paradoxical dimensions into the black immigration debate in Canada in the years leading up to World War I. While Laurier had plotted to keep blacks out altogether, Borden admitted what he hoped would be subservient African Americans and West Indians into the Canadian workforce, end quote. She essentially calls it a preference of white people wanting to admit black people so long as they are subservient and grateful and do not seek equal footing. I talked about this before, how it was thought that comments like those made by Mr. Sneed, that he was coming into Canada to not be subservient and that he could hold his own with the whites, was part of probably what gave rise to the hysteria. This was not, again, an era where racial views were similar to what the majority of Canadians hold now. I mean, during this time, the Chinese head tax was in full force, and the residential school system, whereby Indigenous Canadians were essentially kidnapped from their homes and sent to boarding schools, the mortality rate, according to the Truth and Reconciliation report, of the residential school system at, its time, at this time was at its peak. Opponents of the Order in Council also said that it could hurt relations with the United States, which, as I previously mentioned, is not actually clear. They also argued that it would alienate black voters in Nova Scotia and southern Ontario. I have to assume that it did. Because it was an Order in Council, Parliament could not formally debate the legislation. On August 12, 1911, the Order in Council was enacted, without any formal debate in Parliament, but it did not yet come into force. Professor Sarah Jane Matthews writes, quote, Never before had the Canadian government imposed a complete ban of any group of migrants based on their race. Neither had any division of the federal government enacted segregation legislation with a national application, end quote. Again, though, the order in council was never brought into force, possibly because of the election, possibly for other reasons that I'll get into in a bit. 
Because on September 21, 1911, the election was held. The liberals would plummet from 133 seats to 85. The conservatives would essentially swap places, going from 85 seats to 132. This dramatic shift in seats was the result of a popular vote decline for the liberals from 48.5% to 45.8%. It's an example of the the first-past-the-post electoral system that Canada has in which a small change in the popular vote can produce dramatic changes in seats in power. The Liberals would win mainly in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Quebec, and the Maritimes, except for Prince Edward Island. The Conservatives would take Prince Edward Island, British Columbia, Manitoba, and Ontario. As is now, Ontario would be pivotal, for it had 86 seats compared to Alberta's 7, Saskatchewan's 10, and British Columbia's 7. For those curious, Ontario currently has 121 seats, British Columbia 42, and Alberta has 34 seats in the House of Commons. Saskatchewan has 14 seats, and it's sort of interesting to note that, you know, a little over 100 years ago, Saskatchewan had more seats than Alberta. Saskatchewan's population exceeded both Alberta's and British Columbia's until the Great Depression. Indeed, and this is something I learned while recording and researching this podcast, Saskatchewan's population peaked in 1936 and would not reach its 1936 population until 1980. As I mentioned at the outset, the Order in Council was never acted on. And it was cancelled on October 5, 1911, the day before Wilfrid Laurier completed his term. The technical stated reason for the repeal of the Order in Council was that the Minister of the Interior had not been present at the August meeting. Maybe. To me, a more practical idea, and this isn't just my idea, but it's from other sources that I will cite, is that this was a pocket order. Bruce Shepard, in his essay Diplomatic Racism, the Canadian Government and Black Migration, noted that the chronology of events involving the Order and Council suggests that it was only to be used if Dr. Miller... Spears, and the other agents failed in their mission to dissuade black migration. The idea was originally publicly suggested in May when the physician was touring black settlements in Western Canada. The Order and Council was passed when Miller was still in Oklahoma, and it was repealed in October when Miller's mission to dissuade black people from migrating to Canada appeared to be successful. Also possible, in my opinion is that the repeal was done because the Order and Council was drafted by a Liberal government in its last days in office, and it seemed to sort of be a rushed political enactment. The Liberals lost that election, wouldn't be in power anymore, and it almost isn't that believable or likely that they would enact a one-year ban on black migration and bring it into force in essentially their last day of office given that there was a new government forming that opposed the Order in Council. The Conservatives under Robert Borden did not reintroduce the Order in Council during their time in power and did not attempt to ban black migration. Borden would be Prime Minister from 1911 to 1920. World War I, and it's leading to, or at least contributing to, conscription, women's suffrage, and the introduction of the income taxes would dominate his government. So where does all this lead us? 
at the start of this recording, I talked about many questions that I had when I first read Order and Council 1911-1324. I now have a much better understanding of the history of the circumstances and migration patterns which led to the Order's imposition. I understand why the Canadian government enacted the Order, not that like I empathize with it, but I know why they enacted the Order, and the likely theory for why it never came into effect. I'm still not sure if the authors of the Order in Council or the public ever truly believed that Canada's climate was unsuitable to black people. However, having read about scientific racism and some of the pseudoscience theories at the time, the concept that people believed this does not seem as absurd to me or unbelievable to me as it does when I first read it. People today believe all sorts of crazy things, and this was before genetics was, you know, fully understood to comprehensively disprove the idea, especially that different races came from different species. Now, often with history, you start to wonder about counterfactuals. What if the Canadian government had not tried to restrict black migration from Oklahoma right around, if not actually before, the start of the Great Migration in the United States? The Great Migration was the mass movement of approximately 6 million African Americans from rural southern United States to urban areas in the North, Midwest, and West starting around 1916. If Canada had been welcoming, how big would the emigration of black people from the southern United States to Canada have been? What if Canada had not been so discriminatory and more and more black people and their extended families moved north? What if this great migration had started earlier, but with people going to Canada instead of north of the Mix and Dacey line? What percentage of Western Canada's population might be black? Pondering such questions is, of course, a fool's errand. For Canadian immigration policy during the end of the 19th century and the first half of the 20th century did not have multiculturalism in mind. This was a time when the Chinese paid a head tax before simply being banned from Canada or at least new people banned from Canada, when white Vancouverites rioted to keep a ship filled with Sikh migrants from docking, when Jewish refugees were unable or redirected to Nazi German, and essentially all non-British or American immigration was banned during the Great Depression until after the Second World War. But these are all subjects for future podcasts. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.